where just before the speaker comes, somebody gets up and says, our speaker today needs no introduction, and then goes on and on for five and ten minutes introducing said speaker. And I've always thought to myself, I'd like to get up someday and say, our speaker today needs no introduction, and then just sit down. Just kind of leave it at that. Um, that's kind of how I feel like today. Our speaker today needs no introduction. It's I. Um, and I'm looking for a place where my water bottle will fit. Okay, we're going to have to go right there, I think, and hopefully it doesn't fall. So it was probably during the ninth inning of the baseball game between Vanderbilt and Arizona last night that my phone rings, and I look at it, and it says, uh, Will Cody. And I said, huh, I wonder what Will wants. And so I said, Steve, guess what? I was hiking at Dunbar Cave yesterday, and I twisted my ankle really bad. Uh, I'm, uh, what are we going to do? And I said, well, what do you want me to do? He says, uh, can you preach for me? Sure. So uh, we talked a little bit about it, because for a while he was thinking about maybe he could uh, come and preach sitting down on a chair. I said, well, you want to do that? And he goes, not really. It really hurts. I said, okay, I, I got your back, Well. <laughs> And so I, I hang up, and, you know, my wife's sitting right next to me, and she, so she can hear the whole thing, and she says, uh, so are you going to preach tomorrow? I go, yeah. And she, I said, um, do you think I ought to stop watching the ball game? And she said, you better, probably better stop watching the ball game. And it's a good thing I did because it went 12 innings before Vandy finally won, and uh, I would have been up later than what I was at the time. But anyway, uh, so... Will is, um, I, I guess he is recuperating. He did send me a picture of his ankle, and his ankle looked like he had a baseball attached to it. It, it was big. So uh, yeah, pray for Will. I don't think he's going to be uh, hiking uh, with uh, RUF anytime soon, uh, but uh, I'm sure that it hurts bad because it looked pretty bad. Anyway, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, as we look into your word today, we pray that you would speak to us and that as a result, our lives would be changed. And we ask for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Amen. Uh, for about 10 years, my wife and I owned a cabin at the Red River Gorge, and it was one of our favorite places. We would go there often and hike, and it was nice because we had a place to stay that wasn't, you know, camping. It was cabining. Uh, if those are, some of you know what I mean by that. Um, and we just love to go there. And the, and the Red River Gorge is beautiful. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a national geological area that's filled with ridges and cliffs and arches that are sculpted by uh, wind erosion. Uh, and there's a river that runs through it. And it's just a great place. We would go there all the time. Um, and one of the most scenic places to go was a place called uh, Chimney Rock. And, and as you walked out to Chimney Rock, or Chimney Top, I forget which one it was, you could see off to your left this big, this big rock. I mean, it was huge. It was like an arch like this. It was, and it's called Half Moon. It was actually like a big, a great big huge half wheel of cheese. And I thought, man, I'd love to go check that out someday. And so one day, um, I had my chance, uh, and I dropped, uh, I dropped my wife and one of her colleagues off in Georgetown. They had a 
school teachers meeting to go to, and I continued on by myself. I went out and I found uh, uh, you know, a place to park and headed out the trail. Now, the trail to Half Moon was not marked. Um, you know, they, the people who run the geological area, they don't do a whole lot. They do a little bit, but they don't do a whole lot to keep you from um, doing stupid things. And they put, there are some signs there that say, you know, there are cliffs, be careful. And at a few places there are rails, but most of the time it's like, you just better watch out. One of the things that they don't do for the sake of visitors is they don't mark certain trails. And the trail to Half Moon is one of those they just didn't mark. But this day I said, you know, I'm going to go out to Half Moon. So I find where the trail starts and I go out to it and I get to, I get to where this big, big rock starts to come out of the ground like that. And it's probably 100 feet high at least. And I get to the, I get to the place where you start to go up and it's probably 12 feet wide, 12 to 15 wide, feet wide at the most. And I'm looking at the north side, and the north side probably was 90 degrees up and down. And I look at the south side, and it's probably 80 degrees up and down. So you've got this rock that's 12 to 15 feet wide. It's pretty much sheer on both sides. And I want to go up on that. And I'm looking at that, and I'm saying, do I want to do that? And I said, nah, man. You know, I, I got to pick up Connie and her colleague on the way home. I, you know, if something happens, it's, it's, it, it's not a good thing. And so I turned around and went back. And as I was going back down the trail, I met uh, a group of people, and I had seen them before, and they were getting out of a van from some church group in West Virginia. And so he, he said, did you go up on Half Moon? I said, well, not really. I'm by myself. He says, oh, you know what? We're going up there. I've been here before. I'll show you how to do it. I'll get you up there. It's just getting over that first little hump. And so I went with the group, and he says, here's what you do to get up over that first little hump. You know, and I, you kind of have to jump up and kind of land flat on your stomach to get up there, and then you pull yourself up. you got to watch out for the two sides, of course. But once I got up there, and it does widen out at the top. It's probably 20 to 30 feet wide at the top. Oh, it was exhilarating. It was the neatest hike I ever had at the Red River Gorge. It was so great being there. But you know what? I needed somebody to be there and to walk through it with me or else I wouldn't have done it on my own because I just wasn't certain about the wisdom or the ability to do it. But I needed somebody to walk through me and to help me with that. And that's the kind of thing that we want to see here from this passage that I want to speak on today. This is Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And let's, let's read this. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Um, to the angel of a church of Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, not and are not, but they're a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. 
and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What we want to see today is this, that because Jesus died and came to life, our perspective on life and death is changed forever. Because Jesus died and came to life, our perspective on death, life and death is changed forever. Because he has gone there, he's gone there before us, it's not something that we have to fear. Death and life, life and death, have a whole new meaning because of Jesus. He's been there. He can help us with that. He can get us through that because we are in him. He's the one who holds us and leads us. He's the one that we need to get up onto that rock that we were afraid of doing. So just a bit about this uh, book of Revelation. John was instructed, uh, and you can read it in chapter 1, to write uh, to the seven churches. And what he wrote to the seven churches is this entire book of Revelation. The entire book is for the seven churches. But in chapters 2 and 3, he has a specific message or oracle for each one of the churches individually. And uh, so we're looking today at this message or oracle to the church of Smyrna. And each one of these messages or oracles follows the same exact pattern. There's the description of the Son of Man. There's a commendation for the church. There's a rebuke for the church. There are commands and warnings. And then there's the promise for the one who conquers. Every single one of the seven messages follows that same outline with a couple of small exceptions. And so that's our outline. There's a lot of space on your bulletin. If you print it out, you can write those out. Let me give them to you again. The description of the Son of Man, the commendation to the church, the rebuke to the church, commands and warnings, and the promise to the one who conquers. So let's look first of all at the description of the Son of Man. He says, these are the words. These are the words of the first and the last. These are the words of the one who is dead and who came to life. When Jesus calls himself, Jesus the Son of Man calls himself the first and the last, he is using a title that Yahweh, the God, the Lord of the Old Testament, claims for himself. And he uses it three times in the book of Isaiah. Three times. Yahweh says, I am the first and the last. And so when Jesus says that, what he's doing is he's claiming that title for himself. He is claiming that identity with the God of the Old Testament. He is saying that, as he said in John, the Father and I, we are one. But the first and the last carries with it this idea that everything is summed up in Jesus. When things were created, when things are ended, and everything in between, they're all summed up in Jesus. When Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet, he's saying the same thing. When he says, I am the beginning and the end, it's the same thing. Is that 
from start to finish, it's all Christ. From beginning to end, it's all Jesus. Everything is summed up in him. And he also says that he is the one who died and came to life. And here's the mystery of Christ. Here's the mystery of the Son of Man. Here's the mystery of our Lord Jesus, is that the transcendent one became imminent. The one who was far off and unreachable became close to us. The creator became a creature. The immortal became mortal. And that's the mystery of our Lord. And there are, there are people around the world who reject that because it's beyond our ability to fathom. It's not irrational. It's supra-rational that Jesus and God the Father are different but the same. If you try to explain it any more than that, you just kind of fall off into something that's into heresy is what, kind of what we call it. Um, and so that's the description that Jesus uh, puts out there for the church in Smyrna, and it's exactly what they needed. It's exactly what these Christians in this town of Smyrna needed, and it's exactly what we need. And that brings us to the commendation that's given to the church. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know that there's a lot of pressure on you. I know that you are impoverished. And, and by the way, there are actually two, we, two words in the Greek language that can be translated poor. One means that you're poor and you don't have but just the necessities. The other means you're impoverished. I mean, you don't even have the necessities. And that's the word that's used here. You are impoverished. And, and the Son of Man says that to the church in Smyrna. I know the pressure that's on you. I know that you are really having a struggle making it, that you're impoverished. But, he says, you are rich. And I think Jesus there is saying the same thing that his brother James said in, in, in his letter, where James says, Has not God called the poor of this world to be the rich in faith? I think he's using that in the same sense there, is that you have a wealth that goes far beyond this particular life and what you might have in your pocket or in your wallet right here and now. He says also, I know the slander of those who claim to be Jews, but they're not. He says, but they are a synagogue of Satan. He said, he, Jesus says to them, they're not real Jews. And I think by that he means the same thing that Paul meant in Romans chapter 2 when he says, now a Jew is not one who is a Jew outwardly, but a Jew is one who is inwardly a Jew, one who is... Uh, has received the circumcision of the heart instead of the circumcision of the flesh. That's what Jesus says to these followers of his, I know, I know your tribulation, your poverty, I know those who are slandering or blaspheming you, but you're really rich, but they are not followers. You know, um, Smyrna was an interesting city, there, it's, it's, it was on the west coast of what is modern-day Turkey. It had a natural harbor. It was a large city. As the archaeologists estimate that it was about 200,000 people lived there uh, back in the first century. 
It was a city that was very, very loyal to Rome. Uh, it was exceedingly royal, loyal to Rome throughout its history. That's where they put their loyalties. When, whenever there was, uh, you know, wars between kingdoms over, you know, land, who's going to control what land, Smyrna always, always sided with Rome. Uh, they were the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple to what they call, or what's known as today, the Dea Roma, the goddess Rome. Uh, they were the, one of the first cities to erect a temple to the uh, emperor Tiberius. I mean, so when it came to Rome, when it came to the imperial cult, which means the, the worship of the emperor, they were all in. And uh, because it was a big city, not only did it have a lot of partisans for Rome, but it also had a lot of, of Jews there um, who were there in different capacities. And when, when the Christian faith first came about, it had a certain protection to it. And that, that protection lay in the fact that, that Rome had allowed the Jews an exemption that they gave to no other people. All other peoples were required to uh, give sacrifices to the Roman emperors. But, you know, the Jews, they wouldn't do that. They would die before they would sacrifice to another god. That's how monotheistic they were. They, they simply would not do it. And, and, and Rome kind of realized that. And so they, they gave the Jews an exception uh, out of all the peoples with respect to sacrificing uh, to the emperors. And the Christians benefited from that at first because they were seen as uh, just merely a sect of Judaism, you know, kind of one offshoot, one branch of Judaism. And actually, the early Christians thought themselves to be uh, the true Israel, the true Judaism. And yet, the fact that they served a Messiah who had been hung on a cross, which was a curse in itself... That, that, that irritated the Jewish faithful to no end. And so as you read, for example, in, uh, in the book of Acts, how wherever Paul went and he tried to preach in the synagogues, he has got so much uh, resistance uh, from the Jewish leaders for that very fact. And what began to happen was that the, 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 the Jewish leaders would start uh, saying to the Roman authorities, hey, they're not one of us. They're not part of us. They're somebody else. These protections that you give to us shouldn't be given to them. Uh, they're atheists. They're anarchists. Uh, and later on, Christians began to be, to be called cannibals because of, uh, of misunderstandings with respect to the Lord's Supper. And so there was a lot of economic pressure uh, on the Christians in Smyrna, as you could see from this text, simply because they were ostracized from society. They were ostracized from the trade guilds, from the unions of the day. They, were, they, they weren't allowed to do business um, because they wouldn't sacrifice to the, to the Roman emperor. And so there's all this pressure that's put upon them and Jesus says to them, I know your tribulation or your pressure. I know what's happening to you. And evidently, the church was holding up under it. And that was the commendation to the church is that they were holding up under this pressure and under this tribulation that they found themselves in. Now, out of the, 
out of the seven messages to the seven churches in Asia, only two of the messages contain no rebuke to the church. And this is one of them. There's no rebuke given to the church in Smyrna. So if you're taking notes, you can just leave that part blank. No rebuke. And we'll just go on from there to the commands and the warnings. And there are two commands for the church in, um, in Smyrna. One is do not fear, and the other is be faithful unto death. Those are the two commands, two imperatives that are given. Do not fear. Why? Why shouldn't they fear? I mean, it's a tough time. Why? Because the Son of Man is the first and the last. He is the one who sums up everything in himself. He is the one who is in control of history. He is the sovereign one. He is the one who is in charge. And if that is true, they didn't have to fear. And we don't have to fear either. He did say to them, you will suffer. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Um, he told them right up front, you know, it's, it's coming. You're going to suffer. One of, the first, one of the first leaders of the church in Smyrna was a man named Polycarp. And uh, Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. He was a disciple of John the Apostle. And so he heard from the beloved disciple all of the things that Jesus had told to the twelve. That was Polycarp. Not only was Polycarp the first bishop, but Polycarp was also one of the first martyrs. And Polycarp was burned at the stake because he, was, he would not sacrifice to the emperor. And it was recorded of him. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but the, but the wording goes like this. He says, for 86 years I have served, I did say that right, 86 years I have served my Savior and my Lord. Why should I deny him at this point? And because he refused to say Caesar is Lord, but he said Jesus is Lord, he, he was burned at the stake for that. The Son of Man says to them that, that you may be tested. And this testing here, what it means is that, that you may be proved, that you may be shown to be genuine, that, that your faith might shine forth for what it really is. It's not just a testing to be tested and kind of end there, but it's a testing that shows the genuineness of something. And in this case, where the Son of Man says to Smyrna, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. The idea is that you may be proven, that your faith might be shown to be genuine, that you might be shown to be the real deal, the true article. And he says, for 10 days you will have tribulation. This is an interesting, interesting uh, phrase here. For 10 days, you'll have tribulation. Um, John likes to reach back into the Old Testament and pull out figures and images. And here's one that he pulls out. You remember the 10 days in the book of Daniel? 
where it's in the first chapter where Daniel and his three companions, they're supposed to eat the king's meat and drink the king's wine. And they said, we can't do that because that would defile us. And uh, the person who had charge over them said, hey, you know, if you don't eat and you look bad, you know, I'm the one who's on the hook for you looking to be um, sickly. And Daniel said, well, I'll tell you what. Make a test. Let us go 10 days, and we'll eat vegetable and water. And after 10 days, then you can compare us to the other youths that are here for training. And at the end, end of 10 days, what happened? It was said that they looked better and that they were more prepared, ready to go into training. And their, their faith was proved to be genuine. And so that this reference here to 10 days, you shall have tribulation, it's an allusion to uh, Daniel and his three, three friends. It's like uh, the Son of Man is saying to Smyrna, this is going to be for you like it was for Daniel and for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You, you'll be tested, but you'll, your faith will be proved during that time. That was the first command. Don't fear. I mean, it's going to get bad. Things are going to get worse. Don't fear because I am the first and the last. But he also says, be faithful unto death. Why? Why be faithful unto death? Well, because the Son of Man passed through death into life. Because he is the one who died and who lives again. And he says to them, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, the word crown here is not the word that you imagine for a, what a king would wear. Uh, in the Greek, that's the word diadem. This word here is the word for a victor's wreath, what they handed out to somebody at the games. Uh, those who won at the Olympic Games, they were given a victor's wreath. It was a circlet that went on the head. And he, he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown, the victor's wreath of life. Or to put it another way, I will give you the victor's wreath of life which is life. That is, the life that I give you is the reward that you will receive for conquering, for being the victor in this struggle. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you that victor's symbol, which is life itself. You know, we often worry about where things are going today for, con for Christians. Uh, we, we look around and we see the things that are happening in our country. We see that in more and more ways, uh, our culture and our society is sliding away from, from God and from Christ. And we, we kind of feel like this slide is persecution. Um, you know, I'm not ready to say yet that, that we're being persecuted like other Christians around the world are currently being persecuted or like Christians in the past were persecuted like the church in Smyrna. That might happen someday. I, I don't know. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Um, you know, we, the, the author to the book of Hebrews says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That, that's in Hebrews chapter 12. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And I don't think we have come to that point yet in our society and our culture. Will it come to that point? Who knows? 
Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But our God is in control. Jesus is the first and the last. He is the one who will see us through whatever happens. Whatever happens. But all he says to us is, do not fear, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. And then last, there's the promise to the one who conquers. And this is in in verse 14. The one who conquers... And the, the word that's used there is the, it's the, it's, it means the one who comes out on top. It's the one who is the victor, the one who wins the war, the one who is the conqueror, the victor. He said, Jesus says, to the one who conquers, will not be hurt by the second death. And it's interesting there that it, when you think about it, be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life, to the one who conquers, he'll not be hurt by the second death. Do you see what he's saying? He is saying that the way that Christians conquer is by being faithful unto death. The way that we overcome is by being faithful unto death. I don't know if any of us or all of us or few of us will have to go to death for our faith. I I can't say that. But the way that we conquer is is by being faithful to the Son of Man, even up to the point of death. Through every single step, no matter how bad it gets, every step of the way, being faithful to the Son of Man, that is conquering. That is overcoming. The second death... when you, when you get to chapter 19, 20, 21 of Revelation, the, the second death is equated with the lake of fire. And it, I mean, it's a one-to-one e- equation. He says, and the, the, lake of de- the lake of fire is the second death. What is meant by that? Um, it's, I think it's the dissolution of the soul. I think, and this is an idea that you would see in uh, C.S. Lewis's the, the Great Divorce. It's, it's the, tra- the trajectory of the soul permanently in a direction opposite from God. That's the lake of fire. That's the dissolution at the end. It's the, it's the flight of the soul or the direction of the soul that is moving permanently away from God. For the Christian... Life is not about comfort in this world. Life, uh, true life, it's not about comfort in this world. True life is not about having a good reputation. True life is not about being able to fit in uh, to the business world and, and, and be part of the commerce no matter what it is. True life is not avoiding poverty. Life is following Christ wherever he leads us. And for the Christian, death is not the dissolution of all we hold dear. It's not the loss. Death is not the loss of our property. It's not the loss of reputation. It's not the loss of life. But death is faithfulness to our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus died and came to life, our perspective on life and death is forever changed. Because he passed through death, 
came into life. We know that somebody has gone before us. We know that somebody goes with us. We know that somebody guides us and keeps us along the way. We know that we have somebody that will help us to conquer that which, of which we were fearful. Uh, a, a number of years after my first conquest of Half Moon Rock at the at uh, um, Red River Gorge, I was down there with a, with a number of people. Uh, my wife was along this time. Our um, daughter and son-in-law, not, not these two, but the other ones, were along. And also, we had with us an exchange student uh, from Geneva who was along. And uh, our daughter and son-in-law particularly wanted to see uh, Half Moon. And so we all hiked out there, and we all started getting up. And, you know, it's that getting up on that first one, that's a little bit tough. You know, and it was still kind of sheer on both sides. Uh, and so everybody starts going up. But our exchange student just couldn't bring herself to do it. And she was in tears. And she was just crying and crying and crying and crying and crying because she wanted to go up, but she couldn't bring herself to do it. She wanted so badly to try but she just couldn't get over that first hump. Now, let me break in there and say, this is just an illustration, right? And as you know, every illustration breaks down at some point. And so I'm not saying that if you are out in the wilderness that you should throw caution to the wind and be reckless and take all kinds of chances and especially do something that you're not comfortable with. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all, that you should do something that you're not comfortable with. Okay, so let's just get that, you know, settled right away. But the point is this, is that our exchange student didn't get to experience the exhilaration of making it up there because her fears were more than her trust of everybody around her who was there to give her a hand. And again, again, I want to say it's an illustration, and I don't blame her for that. You know, I, I wouldn't blame anybody for saying, oh, I don't want to do that. But you know what? She really wanted to go, and she was just in tears. She was in tears because of, of the conflict there. We, we don't need to be conflicted when we come across something that's hard, like being faithful unto death, because we know that somebody has gone before us, and somebody is there with us, is helping us along. Because Jesus died and came to life, our perspective on life and death is changed forever. Let's pray. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for Jesus, the Son of Man, the one who was the victor before us and the one in whose victory we relish. We live in his victory. May we follow him, may we be faithful to him, no matter what that calls us to do, because we are his and we are yours. Amen.